So we're continuing this morning in the book of Judges. We've come to chapter 5 in that book, which is the song of Deborah and Barak. So this, this song of celebration that we're going to look at, it's going to take us, I think, a number of weeks to get through it. Um, but it sings of what occurred in chapter 4. And so for those of you that were not able to join us for our examination of that chapter, or would like a little refresher on what occurred, I'm going to give that to you right now. That way we understand what we're going to be reading initially here in chapter 5. So um, in chapter 4, this is, these are events that occurred after the time of the judge Ehud. And the Israelites had apostatized again during this time. And this apostasy brought judgment from the Lord God. And the Israelites are then oppressed by an external enemy that God has brought forth for judgment. God sells the Israelites into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, there are two villains in the story in chapter 4, and thusly the same in chapter 5. The two villains are the king, Jabin, and Sisera, his commander of his army. Now, Sisera is the predominant enemy in both chapter 4 and chapter 5. Um, he is the one, we are told in chapter 4, that oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. The oppression is pointed to coming from Sisera more than the king. And Jabin, this king, is predominantly, he remains in the background throughout the story. And like there's two heroes, there, excuse me, two villains, there are actually three heroes in this story. There's the prophetess Deborah, who was judging Israel at that time, according to chapter 4. And the Lord uses Deborah in such a way that she assists in the raising up of the needed military leader for Israel. Now remember, the judges at this period of time were not really judicial officials. They were military leaders, men who had the ability, the anointing, to call forth the armies of the tribes of Israel. But, but Deborah, she is said to be, she's judging. She is actually a judicial official. She is like the judges that we see created by the Israelites, by Moses, in the book of Exodus. She is hearing cases um, and keeping the peace internally in Israel. So Barak is the one. He's the, another one of the heroes. He's the one who actually... Uh, is the military leader that is raised up. He's the one that can successfully call out some of the tribes of Israel to do battle against Sisera and his forces. So Barak is the one who, who fills this role of Shephetim, or what we refer to as a judge or a deliverer or even a savior, in the book of Judges. Judges 2.16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So Barak fits that role. 
However, it's clear from the story in chapter 4 that Barak leaned heavily upon Deborah. Um, it's doubtful that without this assistance, if you will, or prodding from Deborah, that Barak would have fulfilled his role. God obviously used Deborah as a helper in raising up this man who had a reluctance about him. Our third hero, surprisingly, is Yael, the the wife of Heber the Kenite. She's the one who actually kills this cruel oppressor, Sisera. So Deborah and Yael, interestingly, are the predominant heroes of the story, and Barak is really portrayed as a secondary hero. He really remains in the background quite a bit. So now we come to chapter 5, which is the celebratory poem or song of the Israelite victory. And we see the same emphasis on these people I've spoken about in chapter 4 continues in to chapter 5. And as I said, it's a celebration of the Israelite victory. So let's think about how we celebrate victory in our society, in our culture? You know, how does it align up with what we're seeing at this time in Israel so we can understand what's going on? So there was a time in our nation when great military victories were celebrated, and they usually were celebrated with grand parades. Now, this is not just pertinent to the United States, but we see this in all countries, from ancient nations from ancient times, from the Romans on, military victories, there would be a triumphal parade. We've not really seen any of those since World War II. I don't know if it's because we've not had any grand victories since World War II, or whether our understanding of what should be celebrated as a society has been changed and impacted. Another thing that we've done to celebrate victories, and we see this throughout the world, not just in this country, is that we erect monuments to victories. And we look again at this country, how we do it today, and we really don't see monuments to victories. We see memorials to the dead more than anything else. Um, Again, you know, I'm not going to comment on why that may be. That would be a very deep subject to go into. But it's something to consider that we're seeing a shift here. Maybe it is that many people today find the idea of celebrating a military victory as an odd thing to do, if not improper, that maybe it gives a sense of that we are um, uh, making something of war which we should not. And then songs, because we are talking about a song here in chapter 5, thinking about songs that celebrate military victory in our culture. And they're very, very rare. And I, I searched for examples, and, you know, and of course I, I, I thought of the, um, the songs of each of our branches of the military. Each has a song that's dedicated um, to that branch. And uh, you look at the, the army song or the Marines hymn, and they speak of tradition. 
but not really of victories per se, just the traditions that those branches of military have in military campaigns in the past. Like the, the, the Army song speaks of the Revolutionary War, the Indian Wars, and World War II. Nothing from that point on. In the Marines' hymn, they sing of the times in the first Barbary War and the Mexican-American War, but nothing from that time on. So they're, they're not really about victory per se. They're about the grand traditions that those branches have. But the Navy hymn is different. Not that it speaks of victory, but the Navy hymn is a deeply Christian hymn. It was written in 1860-61 by a minister from the Church of England. And he, he had experienced a very near catastrophe on the high seas in a storm. And he was moved to write a hymn in regards to God being the only one that can rescue in the face of nature's fury. And it's interesting. I was, I was thinking about this. It's like, well, seafarers from time immemorial have realized that we, mankind, cannot do battle with. We cannot prevail over the forces of the sea. All pride and hubris seems to go out the window when we're dealing with forces as such. And interestingly, this the Navy hymn is in our hymnal. It's at page 629. It's Eternal Father, Strong to Save. And it's a it's a it's a very moving um him and like I said, deeply, deeply uh, Christian. It's interesting how a military branch has adopted such a hymn. But of course, when you look at the story behind that, it goes way back into the 19th century, shortly after the hymn was written, that uh, one of the superintendents of the Naval Academy um, started to push this as representative of what the sailors and marines in our in our naval service uh, experience on the seas. But we do have other ways to celebrate victories, don't we? We love to celebrate victory. Um, maybe not so much military victory, but how about sports? We love to celebrate sports victories. And what happens when our professional sports teams win a championship? Oh boy, do we celebrate. We destroy things. We have thievery break loose. There's violence galore. So this is an example of, just a small example. I could make many others, but we need to move on. How our secular celebrations reflect mankind's sinful condition. And we mustn't forget, though, the main idea that I want to leave you with when we talk about this idea of celebrating victory is when we gather on the Lord's Day today and any other Sunday we gather. We raise our voices together and sing and give praise for a victory, don't we? We have songs of praise and thanksgiving for the victory of our Lord and Savior, which brought our liberation from bondage and sin and to death and to the devil. 
singing joyfully in praise of what the Lord has accomplished. And we study God's word, we find that the singing and praise of what God has accomplished goes back to the very beginning. In the book of Job, the Lord God tells Job that when he laid the foundations of the earth, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There was singing in praise by the heavenly host when the Lord made the world. And such singing will mark us, will mark God's people as we go into eternity. John in the book of Revelation tells us he sees a great multitude in heaven of the redeemed and of the righteous angels gathered around the throne of God singing, singing hallelujah. Salvation salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So there's no greater evidence of the importance of singing for God's people than the book of Psalms that we have in our Bibles. There are songs of praise in there, of thanksgiving, of deliverance, of dedication. There's songs for the Sabbath, there's songs of love, and there's songs of lament. There's songs for virtually every occasion. And when we gather together, united as adopted into the family of God, we open and we close our worship to our Lord with song. And think about the way we do this. I think this is important, and and it's been on my mind a lot um, lately. Many of us, including me, come from what we might call a non-denominational evangelical uh, background. And I remember going to church services in those situations. And how what we do here is so different, that we don't here try to replicate a rock concert. We don't dim the lights. We don't have a group of performers before us on a stage accompanied by special effects. And a sound system that drowns out the untrained voices of the congregation and amplifies the voices of the performers. No, we, we don't have that. We sing in the light. Our musical accompaniment is beautiful in its simplicity, our piano. And in the light, we can see and hear one another. I know many of your singing voices. I recognize my brothers and sisters lifting their voices to our Lord. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing to me. I think this gives us a foretaste of what John saw in heaven with the heavenly host and the righteous praising God. When we're there doing that, we will see each other. We will hear each other's voices. And I hope my voice is much better then. (laughs) But if it's not, I will still raise it with you, my brethren. So worship is what we do. It's not just what we experience. And in chapter 5, we come to one of the oldest poems in the Old Testament. And after the dramatic narrative of the victory over the Canaanites in chapter 4, it suggested that, it, that this actually may be one of the oldest texts 
in the Bible. Well, how how do theologians, how do scholars determine that? Well, the surrounding text to this is is more in a more classical uh, Hebrew uh, style. That's what it's written in, and this. This, this poem is written in a very, very archaic, very ancient Hebrew style that's got the attention of the scholars thinking, whoa, this is, this is really old. Now, that's not to say that these things don't match up, because remember, we're talking about oral tradition along with writing, right? So don't, don't let that, that, tri- that trip you up. Um, and also, this, this poem contains many of what are called um, hapax legomenons, which means uh, occurs only once. These, these are things in language that scholars find, it's, and it only occurs, like in this case, it only occurs once in the Bible here. That's, that's what a hapax is. And we're informed immediately when we read chapter 5, that this poem was sung. That's what it tells us. And it was sung by Deborah and Barak. And interestingly, the Hebrew verb to sing here is in the feminine singular form, indicating, I would say, that the song was sung primarily by Deborah. And this is also supported by the order of the names were given as to the singers. Deborah comes first, then Barak. The song itself, the way it's composed, suggests a multi-voiced participation. And then with what this evidence we've seen, Barak's part in the song may have been incidental uh, to Deborah's, just like his role in throwing off Jabin and Sisera. And tradition holds that Deborah was also the composer of this song. And they sang it on the exact same day that they had victory over Sisera. The circumstances in which this song is sung and the way it is introduced is markedly reminiscent of Exodus 15, the song of the sea or the song of Moses, which was sung by Moses and the Israelites after being rescued by the divine intervention from the vastly superior forces of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. The day which gives rise to the song in both cases, is a day of salvation. Just like the day of the crossing of the Red Sea, like the defeat of the wicked Sisera and his 900 chariots of iron. This is a reminder to us that there is both a foundational once-for-allness about God's saving of his people and an ongoing here and nowness. It's not just ancient historical events that we are studying. We, we, we read these things because God has given them to us to bless us, to instruct us, because they are applicable to our life today. What God did then, he will do now. What God did then, he will do again in the future. This is to give us hope. This is not just dusty history that we're reading about. The God who saved Israel from Egypt went on saving them. And the salvation we participate in under the new covenant has this same double aspect to it. Now, this sung poem, this song in chapter 5, has been described as a heroic poem, a war ballad, or a victory hymn. 
And there's a point in all of this, and this is the first point I want to make with you. It's our true, our true and really sole celebration of victory is found in Jesus Christ. As we've seen, the Bible points us to this from beginning to end. Those who believe and declare that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior experience the ultimate victory that cannot be undone. And that does not need and does not need to be fought for again and again. Human victories, when we think about them, they can only be temporary. And this is one of the key lessons, I would say, from the book of Judges. Even though the judges or deliverers or saviors are raised up, established by the Lord, the deliverance they bring is limited to human lifespan. Generally speaking, the lifespan of the judge that God has raised up. And the death of the judge brings the end of the period of rest, that period of safety, security, and stability that was brought by the judge's victory over Israel's external enemy. When we think about our victories that we experience in sports, when we walk off the field, or we walk off the court, or we leave the pool, we know that we must face another opponent, another adversary, uh, um, another team. We know there's another game, another season to come. Even if we're the champion, it's only temporary. We must defend that title. Someone will try to take it from us. And in a political victory, there's always another campaign, another vote, another election to come. And then there's military victories. And I think this is probably the most devastating to consider because it really drives home the temporariness of our victories. Even after many have lost their lives to gain a victory, there will be another battle. There will be another campaign that must be fought. And a war won is really just the prelude and often the cause of the next war to come. And the victors are often left with a realization of this futility. But when Christ's kingdom is fully realized, which we are experiencing even now, but not yet in its full magnificence, more is to come, it gets better and better, We'll fully know this, we'll fully realize it upon the day of the Lord, when Christ returns in victory. And that victory we will share in. It'll be an eternal victory. And think about this. Eternal victory. I don't think we can comprehend that fully. I know I can't. A victory that is final. No more fights, no more battles, no more wars, no more struggles. Eternal victory means victory ongoing, victory evermore. We've never experienced such a thing. 
And, and it won't be like, you know, we'll be reminiscing on a victory that was. It's not like after the Lord's return, after the day of the Lord, when we have life everlasting with them, that we'll stand there and say, man, remember when we won? No, because it won't be past tense. This is what's so hard for us to understand because we live in this time dimension of past, present, and future. But the victory will be now. It will have been, well, I can't say then because we're in eternity, right? But that just kind of just blew my mind away. It's like the euphoria of victory. We've, we've all probably tasted that to some extent, whether personally or with a team we like, or maybe, uh, uh kids or grandkids or relatives who've been on a sports field. And just, just that, that wonderful feeling of victory. Could you imagine that never leaving us? I think that's what it's going to be like. I don't know, but that's probably one of the reasons we need a resurrection body to deal with that joy. In my state now, I know I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. It would probably just, you know, I'd collapse at, at some point. It would just wear me out. Never-ending victory is what our Lord Jesus Christ has brought us, will bring us, and what we'll experience. So now let's look at a few of the uh, the verses, the, first, the beginning verses of Judges chapter 5. And right now I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Please follow along with me in your Bibles. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. So in this first stanza here, there's a, there's a phrase. In the ESV, it says that the leaders took the lead. Literally, in Hebrew, this reads, when long hair hangs loosely. Well, how does that connect to the leaders taking the lead. Well, in ancient Israel, uncut hair is a sign of a religious vow. Think of the vows of the, the Nazarites. Um, the na- Nazir means to separate. Um, this, this, this vow is explained in Numbers chapter 6. It's usually um, expressed as a temporary vow in Hebrew scripture, although we do excuse me, have, have examples of lifelong Nazarites. Um, Samson, the judge Samson, lifelong Nazarite. Um, uh, Hannah, the mother of the last judge of Israel, who's Samuel, vows that if the Lord blesses her with a son, no razor shall ever touch his head. So the thought is he also is a long, lifelong Nazarite. And loose hair the, the, the sun cut hair is mourning, loose hair, hair let down is a sign of mourning, of sorrow. And why would they be in mourning? Well, we have to consider that the leadership ideal in Israel, and at the time of the judges, we don't usually meet the leadership ideal. It's absent. But the, but the, but we get a hint of it here. The liter, leadership ideal meant dedication to religious service to Yahweh because Israel was to be a theocracy, which is a government in which the power and authority is ascribed to God. 
So in the literal translation of the Hebrew, let their hair hang, uh, long hair hang loose, we can see a vow to dedicate themselves to Yahweh and mourning over Israel's apostate state. In the second line, we read, or they sang, the people offered themselves willingly. And this expresses literally what we see in the first line expressed metaphorically. Like Nazarites, the people voluntarily set aside their normal way of life and dedicated themselves to Yahweh to serve as warriors. Now remember, in Israel, there was no professional warrior class. When the armies of the tribes were called out, these were men who were shepherds and farmers and maybe some sort of craftsmen, but they would have to leave their land and respond to the call. And the first stanza ends with a call to praise Yahweh, bless the Lord. This is addressed by the singers, Deborah and Barak, to their fellow Israelites. All of Israel should bless the Lord. Let's look at verse 3. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. So verse 3 here is addressed to the leaders of the nations, who are the Gentiles. And it's intended, I would say, to be instructive. It's like a teacher addressing a pupil. The singers, what they're saying is, hey, listen up, pay attention to this. And this is very much like the approach we find in, in Hebrew wisdom literature. A good example is the book of Proverbs, things that are, that are intended to be instructive to us. And the first person voice here says, I will sing, I will make melody. So that's probably Deborah. She's the predominant singer here. And she makes the point that the joyful worship of the people of God is something that the world should take note of, for it is a witness to the worthiness of Yahweh and a challenge to them to give him his due by joining in. It's what we do. We don't make secret our worship of our Lord. And we want the world to join in. And by doing it, it's a challenge to others that this is the proper way to worship the one true God. Now, verses 4 and 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. This brings us to our second point, that the Lord God is an active and ever-present help to his people. We see this truth in the stanza. Verse 4 and 5 uses the language of theophany or an appearance or manifestation by God made visible to people. And the songwriter here clearly wants us to connect Yahweh's saving of Israel at Sinai during the Exodus with the present victory over Sisera. See, even though these events are far in the past to us, 
Exodus was far in the past to the Israelites at the time of the judges. So it's pointing to something that was history to them, but applies to them in their present. We should think of it the same way. And the point that Deborah's making here in her song, in this verse, is that Yahweh did not remain at Sinai. The Lord God is an ever-present help to his people. He comes again and again to the aid of his people in their present troubles. That's why we can take comfort in that, because we know the Lord is with us. The Lord will help us. It's not just a matter of, well, remember what the Bible said, what God did back then. (sighs) This is a horrible, scary, terrible time we're in. I take comfort on that. And it's hard to take comfort just in a historical fact unless you can apply it to the present. But we can apply this to the present. That's the point. Notice this when you read your Bibles, then when it talks about things that occurred, which we call indicatives, that it attaches very often the indicative to an imperative, which is something we must do, or something that must be done, or something that will be done, and it often is connected to a future blessing for us. So we need to work on not just being focused on God once did this great stuff. Yes, he did. We need to know that. We can proclaim it because he's doing it now and he will do it in the future. The same God who delivered the Israelites at the Red Sea crossing delivers them at the waters of Megiddo in the battle against Sisera. The same God who came to Mount Sinai also came to Mount Tabor where the Israelite army was gathered before they charged down on that plain of Jezreel to confront 900 chariots of iron. Note how the language used to describe Yahweh's coming is that of a tremendous storm with an earthquake. This description, there's there's a reason for it. It's a strong polemic. It's an argument because the Canaanites... Their god, Baal, their chief god, was a storm god. What Deborah is singing about is that this storm god is nothing. Our god is the one who controls these things. Our god controls the forces of the earth and weather. Not some lesser pagan deity, Baal, in reality, has no control over any of this, is what Deborah is saying. And when the true God marches forth, this language theophany tells us that creation comes unglued. God is so powerful. The earth trembles. The clouds pour down rain. The mountains shake. And we'll see as we go through this song in the weeks to come that this is associated with an occurrence that contributes to the defeat of these mighty chariot forces on the plains of Jezreel. A good example of this, the use of this language we find in Psalm 18, 
I'm going to read a passage of this, Psalm 18, 7 through 19. And in here, note the language David used in this psalm, celebrating the day in which the Lord delivered him from all of his enemies, including Saul. And it reads, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Now just an aside here. Think how much this is reminiscent of chapter 7 in Daniel, verse 17, with the Son of Man coming on the clouds to appear before the Ancient of Days. This is, this is what we call cloud rider symbolism. And again, it points back to the Baals that were described in the literature of the ancient Near East as coming on clouds. These these descriptions that we find are not just fanciful. Like I said, they're polemic, whether it be in Judges, whether it be in Psalms, whether it be in Daniel. The human author is declaring God's statement that only I, the triune God described in the Bible, is the one to do these things, not these deities that the pagans worship. Now going on in the psalm, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So God appears as a force of nature manifested in storms, accompanied by thunder and lightning, along with fire and smoke and volcanic activity. But God, our God, is not a force of nature. He is the creator of nature. As creator, he is also controller of nature. And these descriptions are of a phenomena that is purposely fearful. Because these things are beyond human control, and they are life-threatening. Yet David proclaims that this fierce and threatening God rescued him from his strong enemy, a strong enemy who hated David, a strong enemy that was too mighty for David to fight and have victory over. David says God rescued him because he delighted in David. The strong, fierce God is a loving God. That's something that we must 
keep in mind together. So these theophanies, these manifestations, are intended to communicate the sovereignty of God to us. That there's nothing superior in force or power to the Lord God. That the Lord God is not controllable by humans. Unlike pagan gods, the true God is not at our beck and call. And the proper human response to our God should be awe and reverence and a proper righteous fear, obedience to his commands and a love for him. Back to Judges, verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8 in chapter 5. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yahel, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? So here we see in verse 6, we see a reference to Shamgar. This is a minor judge who followed Ehud uh, back in Judges chapter 3. And his name, you know, hints to him possibly being a non-Israelite. And verse 6 makes him contemporaneous with Yahel. And it's interesting, I think, that she's used as a chronological marker here, not, not Deborah or Barak. So this... The use of her underscores her heroic status that she's given in this song. And she, like Shamgar, is possibly a non-Israelite, being the wife of Heber, the Kenite, who is a non-Israelite. We don't know. He could have married an Israelite woman, but there's that possibility. But this time, Deborah is saying, as she sings this, was so bad that people couldn't even travel safely. The main highways were too dangerous because of criminal activity. Whether it be at the forces, the official forces of the Canaanites or just, you know, outlaws running amok because the government was on the side of anarchy. Have we seen that in the last couple years? I think we have. Travelers had to stick to the back roads to avoid thugs and robbers. It's like there was a time in our very recent history where we avoided major cities if we were traveling. You weren't going to go through Portland. You weren't going to go through Minneapolis. You weren't going to go through, well, you wouldn't go through Detroit even now. Um, but anyway, what I, not to, not to disparage or poke fun at the complete breakdown that we experienced in, in these cities, but to draw our attention to the fact that we, we are seeing things that are similar. We have seen things that are similar to the time of the judges. God wants us to notice these things. That's why he tells us of these events. And in verse 7a, the beginning of verse 7, we're told that villagers ceased in Israel. Okay, you couldn't travel the main road. You had to sneak around on the back roads. 
and there weren't any villagers. They, they basically ceased to exist. Well, why was that? Because Israelite villages were not fortified. They were open. You could just go right in. There were no city walls like the, like the large, larger sort of fortified cities of the Canaanites. They could not be defended. So think of this. Essentially, normal village life had ceased. That meant many farming activities, many shepherding activities had also ceased. Think how difficult life would be. Think of the supply chain breakdowns in the Israelite society at this time. Food is not getting to the tables. Horrible. The last part of verse 7. The villagers, they ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Now this is, I think, very, very um, interesting, kind of provocative. Deborah's description as a mother in Israel. Because we go on, this, this, unfortunately the song is so long, there's so much in it, it's hard, for, we can't cover the whole thing, you know, in, in one session. But when we get to the end of it, we're going to see reference to that evil general, Sisera, to his mother. There's a comparison being made here between Deborah, the mother of Israel, and the mother of Sisera. And Deborah's relationship with Barak, think about that. I think it could be likened to that of a mother, right? Think about what Deborah has to do with Barak. She encourages him. She has to prod him. She has to provoke him. Now, all of you ladies who are mothers, especially mothers of boys, we have a boy. This just strikes home, much different than daughter. You know, our daughters were all go-getters. You know, you couldn't hold them back. Our son, it was like, come on, come on. You can do it. Let's go, let's go. Maybe this is the idea here. She must be a mother to get this. I'm not saying all you young men are like that, okay? I just want to be clear. I'm not, I don't mean to be disparaging. I'm speaking from my experience, you know, with, with a teenage boy. She has to get her son up off his duff to do what she knows he is capable of. That's her mothering. And like I said earlier, I don't think Barack would have been able to do what he did without Deborah prodding him and encouraging him and basically at times giving him orders that he knows what he needs to do, so do it and do it now. The next verse, 8, tells us when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? This verse here speaks of the root of Israel's problems. That is apostasy. When new gods were chosen, Israel made that choice to turn away from the Lord God, from Yahweh, to the Baals and the Asheroth. That was their choice. They chose new gods. And Israel 
in this present crisis that they had just faced was basically helpless. War was imminent. It was at the very gates of the cities. Or it was rolling right through the villages that had no gates. And Israel had virtually no weapons to fight with. They were unarmed. This verse prepares us for what is to come by hinting at the daunting prospect faced by those warriors, part-time warriors, that were called forth by Deborah and Barak. An overwhelming enemy. Enemy forces that could go right through their cities, through their villages. And they had nothing to fight with, basically. And remember, they were going up against chariot forces. They were unarmed foot soldiers that must face main battle tanks. That is a daunting prospect. With that in mind, this is why Deborah chose to to honor and praise those who would step forward. Out of this, there's a third point that I want to make. That peace is impossible when the Lord God is rejected. This is not just a theme in the book of Judges, although it is. It's not just a theme in the Old Testament, although it is. It's not just a theme in the entire Bible, although it is. It is the verdict of human history. Mankind has tried every stratagem possible to obtain peace. We've armed. We've disarmed. We've negotiated. We've made threats. We've isolated ourselves. We've joined into grand alliances. And when we obtain peace, the peace is always short-lived if it's obtained at all. It doesn't last. Peace, I would say, is actually antithetical to man's fallen condition. The English philosopher Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, he made this point. Now, Hobbes was a very bold man. He was the closest thing to an out-of-the-closet atheist that was possible at the time. But it was, it's obvious from reading his writings in Leviathan, for example, that he does not believe in God. He's a very modern man at that time. He would fit in very well with the new atheists here in the 21st century. But he describes the state of human existence as the war of all against all. Everybody is at war with everybody else. Everything in nature is at war with everything else. War is the natural state of man, according to Hobbes. It's true. He's he's observing the sinful condition. As a sinner, he's observing the sinful condition, and he's accurate. We've experienced this in our lifetimes. We're experiencing it now, unfortunately. We're at a time where there seem to be many who appear to want war. The war drums are being beat from every angle, whatever news source you look at. 
It seems inescapable, and it seems that there's people that are gleeful over it, which is, which is, which is hard to understand, which is heartbreaking when we think of the pain, the suffering, the lives that are lost in war, sometimes necessary, but when, when it's not. We might think that no reasonable person would want this. But brethren, sin is not reasonable. Neither are greed, fear, or hate, which are all types of sins. Fear, greed, or hate, according to Thucydides, the ancient Greek historian, these are the causes of war. The causes of war are sin. And when the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, is rejected, true peace will be unobtainable. Although we must always pray for peace. We're instructed, we're commanded to do so. But until the time that has been decreed arrives and the Prince of Peace is acknowledged by all on the earth, above the earth, and below the earth, then, and only then, will we have that lasting peace and that everlasting victory that we considered earlier. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the message that you send to us. Father, the promises you give us are difficult for us to imagine, but we can see how glorious they are and how wonderful our future is because of our Savior, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for this time that the world is in. Father, we pray for peace. We pray for innocent lives that are caught in the fields of conflict. Father, what we really pray for, Father, what we desire is that the gospel of Christ will go forth. And we know it always goes forth victorious, Lord, but we just pray for an overwhelming victory of the gospel, that it may be spread far and wide, that we may be the messengers of the gospel of peace to others and the messengers of the salvation that is found only in that gospel. Father, we give thanks. We humbly give thanks for your word, for the encouragement we receive from it. I give thanks for my brethren that I can join in unity with on your day in worship and praise you. Father, may this day continue to be directed to you that everything we do may glorify you and extol how wonderful you are in all things. We pray for the remainder of our services this day, Father. Please bless them, guide us, be with my brothers and sisters here as they go forth. Keep them safe until we meet again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.